Welcome back, listeners, for another episode of the Georgia Music Teachers Association podcast. My name is Bebe Lin, Vice President of Membership with GMTA. We're here today with a cellist from our state of Georgia who has fascinating thoughts and insights that he has shared on his website and blog that I hope we'll get a chance to touch on and talk about during this conversation. I'm excited to meet him and hear his opinions on issues of the day and music. Before we get to that conversation, I just want to encourage you to share the podcast with your friends and colleagues who might be interested. And if you can take a moment to leave a review, I would really appreciate it. And now, without further delay, let's get to today's conversation. We are joined by Justin Doherty. Hello, Justin. Hey, how are you? Good. Thank you so much for making time to speak with me today. Let's get started with just a background question. Tell me about what you do and how you got to where you are today. Sure. Well, my name's Justin. I play the cello. I grew up in Pennsylvania and near Hershey, Pennsylvania, which everybody knows is the chocolate capital of the world or the sweetest place on earth. Uh, which is also near the state capital of Harrisburg. I graduated from Penn State University and went to graduate school at the Boston Conservatory, then kept going and did my DMA here in Georgia at UGA. Uh, When I finished my DMA coursework, I moved back to Pennsylvania to write my dissertation. And while I was doing that, I started cello lessons for a handful of students. When after I ultimately finished my degree and moved back to Georgia, I settled here in uh, Gwinnett County, where I've lived and taught for about nine years. I have no intention of leaving anytime soon because the the music students in the Atlanta area are excellent. Can you tell us a little more about how you got started in music? Cello is rather, I mean, it's not an unusual instrument, but I, I think that it is rather unusual for a young child to start in cello. So how did you get started in that? Well, I, it's, it's funny that you say that. I, my parents initially started me on the violin when I was younger, which I guess is much more common for young students. I don't know whose idea it was. I, my mom would probably say that it was my idea. I think it was probably her idea to switch to cello after about a year of violin lessons. I don't think that they liked the screechy sound of a beginning violin student. They thought the cello would be better. It's not. Uh, it's still just as screechy. And so I, I grew up playing the cello through the public school system in the central Pennsylvania area, and then private teachers and youth orchestras. So I've been playing the cello for more than 30 years now, which is hard to say. So tell us a little more about the decisions to study music, because it's one thing to to study music as a pre-collegiate child, doing it as a hobby. It's another thing to choose it as your profession. What was that decision process like? That's an interesting question, because I don't have any strong memories of choosing to be a musician professionally, um, even in high school. I, I remember sort of following the projected or the, the path that's set out by teachers and other students that they, that they all followed. And I, I followed that path and I achieved some things, you know, the, the various things that most of us do, like playing in competitions and all state ensembles and, and different things like that. And going to college and majoring in music was just sort of the next thing on that path. So I decided to just keep following the path. I don't know, I've written a lot about this, that I don't know that I had a super passion for music, but I wasn't really sure what else I could do with my life when I was 17 years old. That's obviously changed. I'm very happy that I'm a professional musician now. But at the time, it was just the next thing to check off on a list. 
Were you growing up in an environment and surrounded by friends that were very into music? And so it was like everyone was going into music? We had a very strong music education program uh, where I grew up. Uh, the central Pennsylvania area is not very big, but it's definitely um, full of great music teachers and great music students. I don't remember exactly because it's been a long time since I graduated high school, but my high school had about 15 or 1600 students in it. And I think my graduating class had something like 20 or 25 students go off to major in music, which is quite a lot. Um, That's significant. The size. Yeah, it was. It, and the teachers in the public school system and the, my, the private teachers that I studied with were all very supportive of students going out and trying to make music into a career. Yeah. So let's talk about uh, music as a career. What are some challenges you have encountered as a musician? Uh, well, I'm not sure that my situation is terribly unique. But uh, one thing I realized uh, when I went to music school is how little music school prepared me for being a professional musician. Um, especially as an undergraduate, where I think that I was mostly prepared to audition for graduate school. I don't think that I would have been successful in any way. I, I wouldn't have had any idea what to do if I had tried to start becoming a performing musician right after leaving my undergrad. So, I mean, I'm not the only one to follow this path of moving through the higher ed music programs. What might be different about my life versus a non-musician, and even a lot of musicians, is that I went straight through my higher education from my undergraduate degree to finishing my doctorate in about 10 years. So my educational experience in music school varied from the place to place, the different schools that I went to, but one sort of consistent through line is that it shielded me from a lot of the difficulties that come with being a professional performer or musician. You know, in music school, you have built-in friends and colleagues and dozens of opportunities to perform. Teachers and mentors are always around to help you. Um, whether you're working on a challenging thing and you're practicing or you're having a performing issue. Um, and while you're in those situations, you aren't truly worried about things like paying the bills or building a career, at least not to the extent that I think most of us may worry about that now. So when I finished my DMA, I went from playing about 50 solo chamber music recitals per year to about one or two. It was a big drop off. Um, because I didn't have buffers like tuition stipends or free venues to perform in. And I didn't have time to practice four hours a day anymore. <laughs> I mean, even now I've, I've finished my DMA in 2013. I'm only just now getting back into a real rhythm of practicing to get better rather than just practicing to maintain. I'm working hard to get back into playing concerts that I want to play rather than those gigs that we had to play when we were in school, like weddings and bar mitzvahs and things like that, um, that we had to play just to make ends meet. So I, I was really surprised to find that music schools, some, not, not all music schools, are, are kind of stuck in the past. They, they still operate under this assumption that their graduates will audition for orchestras or become soloists, when in reality, that's a completely unlikely career path for, I think, most all music school graduates. Schools that offer a DMA program tend to focus on preparing their students for tenure track positions in higher ed. And I mean, <laughs> those are turning into part-time adjunct positions or they're just disappearing altogether. So I know it's not just my lived reality. It's, it's the reality of a lot of music school graduates, but I've been very lucky to see a path out of school, you know, a way to earn a living uh, without a day job that also gives me freedom to pursue my general musical interests. It's especially lucky in this post-pandemic world as we're all trying to sort of relearn how to be musicians and performers. Yeah. So you talked about how 
universities and undergrad especially didn't prepare you for a professional life. If you were in charge of the curriculum or if you could do it all over again and maybe take a different set of classes or receive different training, what would you have done differently? Or what would you recommend um, that higher ed change in order to improve the situation? Yeah, I, I took one class when I was in grad school in Boston that was titled Career Skills for Musicians. And it was, <laughs> even that class, this career skills class was basically just about how to write resumes. And I remember that we had to write three different resumes for one assignment in the class. And one of the resumes was our typical performer CV, like all of the performing activities that, that we were, we've done. Um, another resume was our teaching resume about private teaching and studio school teaching. And then the third resume was a resume for a day job. <laughs> And what skills that, that we had as musicians that could be translated into office work or retail work, the food service industry, it was, it was somewhat defeatist right from the beginning. And so while I think that classes like that are really necessary, I think it's, it's important to be realistic about what job opportunities exist for musicians. And, and so I think a, a curriculum in college needs to focus a bit more, for performers at least, on pedagogy and more on entrepreneurialship and uh, trying to find those different pathways. Because even if you do have a job as a cello player playing in a professional orchestra, it's very likely that that job isn't a full-time position. You will need to teach at some point. And perhaps I'm just an extreme exception, but I think I took one pedagogy class in 10 and a half years of higher ed. It's also possible that I tried to get out of them. And that's why I only took one. But I would like to see more, more modern career skills for musicians, not so much just going to play and audition and just perform everywhere, but looking around yourself and the environment that you find yourself in and trying to be a bit more uh, curious and creative in your musical outlets and how you earn a living. Did you find the pedagogy class that you took to be helpful? No. That's <laughs> a pretty straightforward answer. No, it, it, it wasn't terribly helpful. Um, it was a string pedagogy course. I'm sorry, it's, I don't entirely remember. Uh, a string pedagogy course that focused on all the instruments. And it, I think it was a bit more of a vocabulary course than a pedagogy course. Learning about the, the names of different bow strokes or reading the writings of different pedagogues. That may have been the most productive part of the course. But I know all sorts of names of different articulations, but that doesn't necessarily help me to teach a 16-year-old how to work their way through a concerto. Yeah. So that's interesting because it seems like even a very a course that is designed to be very practical in terms of developing a young professional, the course shell or the title of the course suggests one thing, but perhaps the content of the course is completely different and disconnected from the practical aspect that it was intended for. Yeah. So let's talk about your life and journey as a teacher. How have you changed? Who or what have been your key influences? Yeah. So because of my lack of pedagogy and instruction and coursework, I, I would say that I was a terrible teacher when I started doing this. I was really quite bad. Um, I think I wrote a blog post in some in 2015 or something titled "I Have No Idea What I'm Doing," or <laughs> I think that's what I what I called it because, like I said, I started teaching and building a studio after I finished my DMA coursework, and perhaps it's rather gauche to talk about, but I was quite poor at that time. I was a 
recently graduated a graduate student, um, having just finished school. So teaching was a means to an end and a way to pay my bills. So I didn't come into it with a fully fleshed out philosophy, and I certainly didn't have any tactics or strategies to help students get better. I was just kind of lecturing and saying, go practice. Now, though, I have a pretty solid idea of what I want my students to leave lessons understanding and knowing. Um, I spent a lot more time thinking about my teaching, uh, certainly much more than I did when I was in school. My practicing my own personal practicing is about improving my own playing and discovering new ways to communicate technical instructions to students. So I love the the way uh, we're using metaphor and imagery in my lessons. And sometimes I can get carried away, end up monologuing about the most inane concepts. But I'm thinking a lot more about my teaching and how I teach uh, my students than I did before. And I guess without a doubt, the, the biggest influence in my musical life is my former teacher from Boston Conservatory, Rhonda Ryder, and by extension, the cavalcade of brilliant musicians that I was introduced to and learned from because of her. I learned an incredible amount of patience and individualized learning and teaching from Rhonda with, because she's both technically and musically brilliant. But I also learned all about new music and the creation of sound worlds and communications, audiences and and other performers from uh, the pianist Judith Gordon. I had a quartet coach named Judith Eisenberg, who was the longtime second violinist in the Lydian String Quartet, who taught me how to be thoughtfully critical and incredibly detail-oriented in rehearsal, practice, and and performance. And I mean, there's so many other uh, performers and teachers who have really influenced how I communicate with my own students and how I think about practicing and playing on my own personal practice time. Yeah, so I think there was a blog post, maybe 2018. I don't know if this is the same one that you you are thinking of and referenced earlier, but you talked about uh, asking your professor from Boston Conservatory about why she accepted you into her studio. And you talked about her response and uh, and how that was the kind of teacher that you hope to be. So can you unpack that for us? Sure. Yeah. I remember my audition, or at least I guess it was my first time playing for Rhonda. Like I was visiting the conservatory <laughs> and checking things out. And I played, I went with a friend of mine who was a pianist and we played a Beethoven sonata. I don't remember which one, but she sat and listened and gave some very thoughtful responses to our playing and gave some suggestions about how we could improve. And I, we saw progress in that class. And Years later, yeah, I asked her why she accepted me because I was not the best cello player at the conservatory, not even close, I think. And I remember that she said uh, something to the effect of, you had some problems, I could see them, and I knew how to help you. <laughs> or I knew I could fix them, I, maybe that's what she said. And it, that was that was, it was true. I mean, it's true of all of us, uh, I suppose. We all have problems, and we're always searching for a teacher who can help us improve. But I had never thought of it that way when I was auditioning for schools, especially, I had always thought just play is, you know, better than everybody else. And that's how you get in. And that's not the case. You want to uh, meet a student where they're at. And if you know that you have the tools as a teacher to help the student improve, then that's, that, that makes for a much better fit than just a superstar performer and a superstar teacher who may not work very well together, despite their relative greatness uh, or, or something. So I try to be a teacher who sees the problems that a student has and help to fix them. I also remember that Rhonda told me, or Rhonda's key to masterclass teaching or 
whatever she told me one time when I asked her about it, um, when I was about to teach a masterclass for the first time, was that you should always choose two things that you can talk about in a masterclass in the time that you're allotted. And one of those things should never be intonation for string players, because you want to find two things that makes the person who is playing leave the class thinking that they've improved. And for string players, we all know that intonation is a lifelong pursuit. And it's very unlikely that in the 30 minutes allotted that you are going to dramatically improve your intonation, barring some genius thought process from a teacher. So I now, when I, I realized that's what she was doing in that first meeting with her, she picked one or two things that she could talk about. We improved upon those two things. Neither of those things were intonation. And I left feeling like this woman was brilliant. And she is brilliant, but it's, I really felt like I had found a person that I wanted to work with. And the rest is history. Yeah. So let's dive a little deeper into your teaching. What are your goals for your students? And then extension of that, what are your goals for yourself? Yeah, I, I'm one of the, like I said earlier, I, I, I answered this question a little bit with a cliche in that I tried to meet every student where they are and help to develop goals for them based on what kind of cello player they wish to be. So some students have a desire to major in music. They show up for their first lesson and they say, I'm going to go to music school after high school. But others uh, want to make all-state orchestra. That's their goal. Some students love to perform and want to learn and play as much repertoire as they possibly can while they're in high school. And some just want to audition and be accepted into the top orchestra in their school. It doesn't really matter to me personally which type of student they are. I want to help them achieve those goals. So to that end, the first question that I ask them when they come in for a trial lesson is, why are you here? And I find that, that the answer to that question, which seems to confuse them when I when I ask it, but the answer to that question tells me a lot about them and uh, what kind of student they want to be, their goals, their commitment to cello playing. And so from there, I can help them to come up with a plan for themselves, one that hopefully results in a lot of musical satisfaction without sacrificing what I personally think is important. For myself at this point in my life, I just want to continue to be a decent cello player. I don't have any goals of playing concerts in Carnegie Hall in the future or doing any massive tours. I have been enjoying experimenting and learning um, music that is new to me, things that I didn't have time or didn't have interest in or didn't have the technical skills to work on when I was in school. So now I practice music that interests me, music that speaks to me in some way or that I think that I can do something with, whether it's a piece that I've played a thousand times, like first Bach cello suite or a piece that I have always wanted to play that I've just never had the opportunity to, like the solo sonata by Ligeti is a piece that I'm working on right now. So we've talked about you as a teacher. We've talked about your students. What about parents? What advice do you have for parents who have children taking lessons? Oh, parents. <laughs> parents are, are, are fun. My, I guess my biggest piece of advice for the parents of any child taking lessons, especially a, a young child, is to come into to lessons with an extreme level of patience, as well as, I guess at least at first, incredibly low expectations. This is especially for parents who are non-musicians, um, because I think that a lot of those non-musicians, my parents were certainly this way, um, there's an expectation that learning to play an instrument is relatively simple and that progress should be quick. They should move fast. And neither of these things is true. I mean, we know that as musicians. But I think that parents and children who wish to learn an instrument should plan on committing to at least one year of lessons before they even start to consider whether that instrument is right for them. 
for example, my most successful three-year-olds are still playing the cello when they turn five. They may not sound great, but they are now starting to get a lot better. Conversely, the students and parents whose level of commitment is a little bit more fluid, they tend to see very little progress in both the short term and the longer term in their playing. I, I, I tell parents of, of young students a lot that when I was growing up, my parents set a rule for me and my two younger brothers that we had to finish doing whatever it is that we started. So, which I guess is also kind of cliche, but it was if we were playing on the baseball team or pursuing a musical instrument, it didn't matter. If we decided that this pursuit wasn't us, we were allowed to quit, but not until that thing was over. So in sports, it would you'd have to wait until the season was finished. Um, in music, we if we were playing in the school band or something, I played the saxophone for one terrible year in fourth grade, but we had to finish out the school year. Um, and I think that that looking back, I, I probably hated it when I was younger, but it was very valuable for me, both as a child and as a student, because it taught me a certain amount of discipline. It definitely developed my work ethic. I wasn't a very good baseball player, certainly wasn't a very good saxophone player. But if I was going to be required to play for the entire season or the entire school year, I had to buckle down and work harder because it's a lot more fun to be good at something than it is to be bad at something. Um, and so if I had to do it, I may as well try to be good at it. And I find that if parents come in with that mindset straight away, rather than we'll start this and see how it goes, their, their child and the parents see a lot more success. I think that answer is a perfect segue after talking about your passion and love for baseball and saxophone. Do you have passions and hobbies outside of music and teaching? Um, yes, baseball and saxophone are not two of my passions outside of cello playing and teaching, strangely. <laughs> but outside of music, I, I have an odd hobby. I am a home brewer in that I brew beer on the side. I like to think it's okay, but I'm not sure if it actually is. People drink it, but it's hard to criticize something that you're getting for free. So I spend a lot of time outside of my practicing, thinking about trying out and brewing beer. That's one of my the primary things that I like to do. Why is that interesting to you? I like science and chemistry and fermentation in itself is just, a, just so fascinating to me, both the how it happens and what happens while it happens. So it's, it's uh, really interesting to me how small changes in the brewing process can completely change the product that you produce. It's very, very similar to practicing. There's a lot of the scientific method that goes into it and metacognition, this idea of trying something, observing the results, and then making tweaks to ultimately get to the end result that you are hoping to get to. So it's very, very interesting to sort of put the, the, the things that we learn in music school into practice in a, in a completely different field. And it, it doesn't hurt that, it, that beer is the result. Yeah, I always wonder for people who have clear passions outside of their chosen career field, if there's any sense of regret that they didn't choose this other passion to pursue for their career. Do you ever think about that? Yes, all the time. I'm I'm going to as soon as um or later today I'm I'm heading to my to my luthiers to pick up some bows and so, and my, and my cello from some repairs and the first time that he and I talked about brewing beer, he asked me if there was any you know, are you thinking about opening a brewery someday? And I can't think of anything that I would like less than um, pursuing my hobby as 
<laughs> the profession, because I think to a certain extent, that's kind of what I did from high school to college is I really enjoyed playing the cello when I was in high school. It was certainly a lot of fun and I, I was okay at it and I liked it. And, but then as soon as you have to pay the electric bill with your performance, there's, there's a little something that, that gets taken away from you. The hobby is no longer as enjoyable as it was before. Now it's work. Now it's, um, you, you have to practice because if you don't practice, you don't eat. And so I, I don't have any regrets <laughs> that I didn't choose any different field. I'm very happy that I'm in music, but I can't imagine doing anything else, even those things that, I'm, uh, that I enjoy doing outside of music. Sure. So what aspect of your life and career as a musician has surprised you? How does it measure up to the life you envisioned for yourself as a young musician? Well, I remember going to music school and thinking that I had all the skills to be a good cello player and a professional musician. Obviously, that was foolish. Leaving high school, I, I didn't know how to practice. I didn't know or understand simple cello techniques. I really had no idea what I wanted to do in music. So probably the biggest surprise to people who knew me in high school is the music that I choose to perform now, um, which is primarily new music in the Western classical tradition. When I was younger, I thought that I'd be playing Beethoven symphonies in a symphony orchestra. But when I discovered new music, I, I really fell in love. And that, that goes back to my time in Boston. I love performing Benjamin Britten as much and probably, if I'm honest, more than I enjoy playing Bach. I get excited when I learn of a new composer and I, I want to work with people and create new pieces of music, whether it's for solo cello or chamber music pieces. And you know, not to mention that I, I teach the cello. I teach the cello for essentially my living, and I, I have a pretty big studio. That's not something that I ever expected to do. So, if I'm honest, this is a very different life that I could have predicted even ten years ago that I might have. But I'm also feeling a bit more fulfilled than I think I, I predicted I would be when I was leaving school. What about new music interests you and attracts you? I love creating new and interesting sound worlds for audiences to experience. I, I think that it's it's not that old music, such as it is, is boring. It's not. It's incredibly interesting. I, I do love playing Bach. I do love playing Beethoven and, and the, all the composers who wrote brilliant pieces of music for the cello. But there's something about like uh, being introduced to crazy, amazing new music that is fascinating for me, the performer, but I think for audiences too. One of the things that I, one of the, the little like outreach programs that I do when I go to schools is a program that I've, I've stolen from my old teacher, Rhonda, that's titled, That's the Worst Thing That I Ever Heard. And that's based on a piece of music by Donald Martino called Parasonatina Aldodecophonia, which is significantly more exciting and fun to say than it is to listen to or play. The, but uh, in a concert that Rhonda played many years ago, the piece is in two large parts. And in between the two parts, there's a very, very slight pause. And in that pause, an elderly couple in the front row uh, leaned over, or the woman leaned over to her husband and said, that's the worst thing I ever heard in the middle of this performance very loudly. And so I've taken that and I've started to take new music that I enjoy playing, but is definitely outside the standard canon and the standard well, sound world, into high schools and middle schools and playing things for them and having students try to figure out what the piece is about um, without telling them titles uh, and things. And so discovering that piece of music that has major seventh glissandos across three octaves um, is about a bird 
it is very intriguing to people who are hearing it for the first time. So you can create a ton of different emotions and get all sorts of different responses from audiences by playing this music. And I think that that is fascinating. So excuse my ignorance in this follow-up question, but uh, for piano and new music, we have lots of like extended techniques. Are there extended techniques uh, that are done on cello for new music? Absolutely. Everything from how we use the bow, or in some cases, multiple bows at the same time, to uh, how we pizzicato and how we create the sound with the bow is some extended techniques. The I don't know if it's the most famous, but uh, the easiest one to describe is what we call the seagull effect. And it was, I, I don't know if it was established or first used by George Crumb in his piece Vox Bolani, but it was, uh, it's a technique on a string instrument where you move to a certain partial on the instrument in the harmonic series, very high on the string. You place your fingers a perfect fourth apart, um, and then you, gl- you play a false harmonic on the string, glissandoing downward without expanding the, the, the size of your hand. So if you understood any of that, there's uh, the resulting sound is that of like a seagull, like flying through the air and cacawing. It's fascinating when you when somebody figures out how to do it. And it also doesn't require an incredible technical foundation to be able to do, which really excites a lot of 12 year olds. So I know what a harmonic is. What's a false harmonic? <laughs> Um, harmonics occur natu- naturally on string instruments. On So the string is broken up into, I'm going to get into some areas that I do not fully understand, uh, which is the harmonic series and physics. The string is broken up essentially into naturally occurring partials. And so on specific points of the string, which we call nodes, those partials sound in pitches that again are naturally occurring and are in various states of in tune and out of tune. A false harmonic is where we create a partial by stopping a string with one finger and touching the string with another finger. So stopping the vibration of the string like we would in a regular technique and then playing a harmonic like we would um, in a regular technique as well, like just lightly touching the string. So stopping the string with one, playing the harmonic with the other creates false harmonic. And with by doing that, we can play a lot of pitches in different ways. Okay, so I, I now I realize, do some people call it fingered harmonics? Is that like a- yes. Okay. Yes. And that's the same thing, right? Yes. Okay, cool. So what are your plans for the near future, the next two to five years? I don't know what the future holds, I I guess, but a few years ago, a studio owner whom I was working for at the time predicted that suburban Atlanta music students were going to completely quit music lessons and move away from that into other things like sports and more academic rigor, et cetera. I don't think that prediction is correct, but what I learned from the pandemic is that music students and music teachers now have so many more opportunities to connect with each other. Excellent students can now study with excellent teachers without traveling to another state or another country. So I think that my studio will continue to be primarily in-person lessons, the excellent students of Gwinnett County, Georgia. But I wouldn't be surprised to find myself branching out into more online teaching, a footprint that is a bit larger than just this small area that I live in. And lastly, this is our very last question. What advice would you give to young pre-collegiate musicians about a life with music? Yeah, wow. Be incredibly curious. What you think you like and what you think you know is just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, There's so much more out there to experience and to learn about. The internet, cliche as it may be to say, is quite vast and allows you to connect with different cultures and musical traditions 
uh, you should learn about those and allow what you learn to influence and enhance your performance of your traditions and your culture. Every performer will eventually be a teacher, whether one teaches in a private studio, in a collegiate setting, by offering master classes when you're on tour with the big symphony that you play in. It's important to dive deep into the technique and pedagogy. We all know that excellent technical skills are necessary to bring musical ideas to life when on the concert stage, but I think we often forget that a deep understanding of why and how we achieve a great technique can help you to pass your knowledge on to students. Great performers, for example, are not always great teachers and vice versa. So I think it's important to spend a lot of time in college cultivating both of these skills, something that I wish I had done during my academic career. Well, Justin, this has been a really fun conversation. Thank you so much for answering these questions and talking with me with such humor and honesty. And uh, truly, I encourage everyone to go check out your website and uh, read some of those blog posts So, because I, I found them really quite insightful and brutal in some ways, honest uh, about the present state of things. But I really appreciated that honesty that you brought to it. So with that, I wish you happy teaching and happy students.